0: Would you pray with me for just a moment? Our Father, we come to you now asking you to use your word in our lives. Teach us, Lord, to be a church that obeys Christ, that honors our Savior, that longs to do that which is pleasing to you. We pray that this morning would be, would go toward that end, Lord. Lord, I pray that your word would be the double-edged sword that you promise that it is. We pray, Lord, that it would cut, that it would do surgery, that it would inform us, that it would thrill us, that we would see our Savior all the more through your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Once in a while, i like to ask a question that I know you've never thought about. What do you do while you're waiting for an apostle? I'll bet not one of you has ever asked that question. What do you do while you're waiting for an apostle? Now, I'm not talking about self-proclaimed apostles, like many today who think that putting a title in front of their name on social media or a church website somehow makes it true. What I'm talking about is waiting for an actual apostle, like a Peter or a James or a John How about the last apostle named Paul? Now, the apostles were men just like us, but they were chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to be the very first preachers of the gospel, to be the conduits of the Holy Spirit by which we would receive what we now know as the New Testament. And they were the first authorities in the church as well, training and discipling men to come after them. And on occasion, they yielded to no one and wielded that authority Instead, the Apostle John did this in his third epistle. He said in 3 John verses 9 and 10, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Here it comes. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing. Insert dun-dun-dun right there. The Apostle Paul exerted his authority in an indirect fashion with Philemon in the church of Colossae when He had exhorted Philemon to forgive the runaway and now saved slave Onesimus. Paul told Philemon to get a room ready for Paul to stay in. In other words, Paul was making certain that Philemon did exactly what was asked of him. But Paul also exerted authority in the church in very direct fashion. He did so with the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 4.21, he said, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love in the spirit of gentleness? And in fact, it was Paul who had sent young Timothy to Ephesus as his representative to essentially be the new sheriff in town, to deal with factions and heresies and false teachers and unfaithful elders. This was a stressful ministry situation in a church where division was the rule, not the exception. And in Paul's first letter to Timothy, Paul is giving Timothy specific instructions on how to deal with his very, very challenging ministry. But then Paul wrote some words that I would imagine were so encouraging to Timothy. In fact, find 1st Timothy chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 13, 1st Timothy 4, 13. We're continuing looking at our larger series in 1st Timothy 4, 5, and 6, that we're calling Well Done, Good, and Faithful Church. And the section we're considering this morning, verses 13 through 16 of 1st Timothy 4, begins with these encouraging words. Paul says, Until... I come, until I come. I would imagine that this would have given great hope to Timothy because you could very easily picture the church at Ephesus like an unruly household with a bunch of little brothers and sisters all carrying on, causing all kinds of problems and chaos. And Timothy is like the oldest brother commissioned to try to bring this thing under control. But then Timothy's phone buzzes. And he turns to all the unruly children and says, Dad is coming home. Oh, what a relief. But it might not be for a while. So what is Timothy supposed to do in the meantime? What do you do while you're waiting for an apostle? So Paul gives Timothy instructions concerning what to do in the meantime. And what we really derive from these verses is a tremendous perspective on what effective church leadership does and that's our focus this morning focusing the leadership focusing the leadership having them do what they're supposed to do Uh, you know this but i've long believed and I, i really am very very convinced of the fact that church members who properly understand the role of shepherds properly understand the church that those two go together and they'll rejoice in the work of christ in their own lives and in the life of the church if this wasn't true, if understanding the work of shepherds wasn't helpful to the whole church, then we wouldn't have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, which are written to whom? To the church. Now, as Grace Bible Church has grown by God's grace and mercy, the challenge of leadership grows with it. And now, more than ever before, it's imperative that the shepherds focus on shepherding. Because the temptation is to become managers, the temptation is to become executives. The temptation is to become those who are visionaries instead of shepherds. It has to be resisted, and the urgency of maintaining proper priorities becomes all the more imperative. Now, we've noted before from 1 Timothy 5.17 that there seems to be basically two flavors of shepherds, elders, pastors in the church. We have the vocational shepherds who devote their lives to this work, and we have the the avocational or the non-vocational shepherds who lend more support to that effort in a variety of ways. Now, today's instruction that we're going to receive applies most directly to the vocational shepherds, the ones devoting their lives to the ministry, but it does apply indirectly to the avocational shepherds, as all of us must know and understand the priority of leadership. And when everyone, every single person in the church understands the priorities of leadership, then the church functions properly as a body, not as this, this artificial separation of the clergy and the laity with this giant chasm in between them. So what are Paul's instructions to Timothy? And by extension to the shepherds in the church, what do you do while you're waiting for an apostle? First Timothy four thirteen. follow along with me. Until I come... Now, the picture we've painted of Timothy waiting for the Apostle Paul to return, asking the question, what do you do while you wait for an Apostle? I would imagine that Timothy is kind of counting down the days until Paul returns to Ephesus, till dad comes home, so to speak. So I'm going to use that theme of counting down. What I'd like to show you this morning is a countdown to effective leadership. A countdown to effective leadership. And I'm going to tell you everything up front. Five commands four determinations, I'll repeat this for you, three results, two applications, and one prayer request. That's what we're going to look at. Countdown to effective leadership, five commands, four determinations, three results, two applications, and one prayer request. Now we'll organize this text by that outline, so we're going to jump around a little bit here. But let's start with five commands. The first command, the public reading of Scripture. The public reading of Scripture, Paul says that In verse 13, until he comes, while Timothy is awaiting for Paul's arrival, he is to devote himself literally to the reading, the exhortation, and the teaching. The definite article before each of those indicates that this was mandatory. This was well accepted. This was a well-known norm of public Christian worship. An effective ministry requires all three. And as we'll see, all three are related to preaching, the reading, the exhortation, the teaching. This first command, the public reading of Scripture, literally is just the reading. Paul doesn't need to specify what else are you going to read. There's nothing else to read that would make sense. And this is clearly based on the well-known practice of reading the Scriptures in the synagogue. The Jews were doing this already. The the local Jewish meeting and and worship meetings, they would be done publicly since the average person didn't own what? A Bible. He didn't own a copy of the Scriptures. And so... Reading in the synagogue was very, very important. We have this recorded in numbers of places in the New Testament. Luke 4, Jesus does a synagogue reading. Acts 13, the Apostle Paul does. We have examples in Acts 15 and 2 Corinthians 13 as well. And this practice carried over into the church. Not only was the Old Testament read, but as the New Testament was being compiled... Paul's writings were also read, a confirmation that the church received these as scripture. In Colossians 4.16, Paul commanded his letter to be read to the whole church. In 1 Thessalonians 5.27, he said, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And in fact, by this time, some of the portions of what we now have as the New Testament were already available and already included as scripture reading. 1 Timothy 5.18, just in the next chapter over, cites Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10 as being scripture. In 2 Peter 3.15 and 16, the Apostle Peter calls the things that Paul wrote scripture. It is discouraging to me that scripture reading has become less and less common in the church of Jesus Christ. I've thought a lot about this. There may be some various factors contributing to this, and I, I talk to various men in the ministry and, and I see what they think. One factor may be a, a man pleasing, seeker sensitive philosophy of ministry that panders to a low attention span. You don't do anything for longer than 30 seconds, has low expectations of attendees. Another factor may be a belief that reading too much scripture might be perceived as boring. I'm just putting it out there, but that's what I've been told. I have read in textbooks on how to be a pastor that you shouldn't spend more than 20 seconds reading the Scriptures. Instead of viewing the reading of Scripture as inherently giving glory to God. You know what the number one purpose of reading the Scriptures is that you're speaking His words back to Him. And it gives Him glory. Glory. We're intentionally repeating his words. You know what I love about reading the scripture out loud? That, that other than a human mistake, I won't mess up the interpretation because I'm not interpreting. Or it could be that scripture reading has become less and less common out of maybe the belief that since everyone owns their own Bible, they're not going to want to sit and listen as the Bible is read to them. But I would remind you of the promise of Revelation 1 verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear. Now you may have noticed that this morning I intentionally did a longer scripture reading. I just wanted to intentionally remind you of this priority and somewhere around verse 15, some of you were going, I think he's going to read the whole thing. (laughs) I, I know it. I could see it on your face. The kind of whispers in the elbows. He's at verse 30. This thing ain't going down here. I want you to consider something. Peter, at his sermon at Pentecost, preached as one filled with the Holy Spirit. But we would say that meant that he was using preparation he already had. And we wouldn't deny the Holy Spirit power of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, but there's no basis for assuming that somehow the scriptures he referenced and that he taught were simply uh, inserted into his head by the Holy Spirit. They could have been, but there's nothing in the text that tells us this. It's much better to assume that he's drawing on previous knowledge empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak at an elevated level and in this case at a a completely inspired level. But I want you to consider this. In Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, the very first sermon he's ever preached in his life with the help of the Holy Spirit, no notes. Consider this. Peter quotes verbatim, Five verses from Joel chapter 2. How many of you could quote five verses from Joel chapter 2? He teaches the theological meaning of those five verses about the Holy Spirit. Peter then quotes four verses from Psalm 16 and teaches the theological meaning concerning the prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter quotes one verse from Psalm 110. That's 10 verses now from memory. Then he cites his knowledge of 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, and Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 16. Now, what I'm having you consider is the fact that Peter never owned a copy of the Old Testament. The most likely scenario is that he was a fisherman, grew up in a fisherman's family, who grew up hearing the scriptures read often and often and often. He went to synagogue. He went to the synagogue school where the local rabbi stood and read from the scriptures over and over and over again. Now, My question for myself, my question for you is how might you listen differently if you didn't have the knowledge that you could just go look up the same passage later, which almost never happens. But the scripture reading was not just a reading for the sake of reading, although that has tremendous value. It does bring us to our second command to Timothy, the second one, the exhortation. The exhortation in verse 13 Timothy is to devote himself to the reading and the exhortation. This also reflected the synagogue practice of reading the scriptures with an explanation or an exposition attached to it at the same time. For example, Nehemiah chapter 8 gives us a clear example of all of Israel gathering to hear the law of God, read aloud and explained by Bible teachers. One of my heroes of the faith, the 19th century uh, London preacher Charles Spurgeon... He didn't mind letting other men into his pulpit on occasion, but one of the things he hung on to and almost would never let anybody else do was the scripture reading. And what was unique about Spurgeon's scripture reading is that he was well known for taking quite some time to read the scriptures because he spent more time explaining the text than he did just reading it. There were some Sundays where it was said that his scripture reading was longer than his sermon. Because he didn't want to just read it, he, had, he felt this compulsion to explain it as well. That's what the reading and the exhortation put together is. In fact, the meaning of the word exhortation is wonderfully broad. It can be as fluffy as comfort, and it can be as hard-hitting as direct confrontation, and everything in between, all the nuances. Here, what exhortation is speaking of is the official and the sermonic urging to put faith into practice. To put what you learn from the Word of God into practice. I like studying preaching. I enjoy that. And it made me wonder, what's the flavor of exhortation? What's the flavor of the application of truth in Scripture? Is the exhortation from Scripture to be couched as hopes? Is it to be couched as suggestions? Is it to be couched in a, in a wonderful Southern Baptist drawl to just kind of lull you into hopefully doing something obedient? Is it nuggets of wisdom for you to consider sometime between now and lunch? Well, you be the judge. Listen to Paul's instruction elsewhere in the pastoral epistles about exhortation. 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul tells Timothy to charge. It means command certain persons not to teach different doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.18 Paul describes Timothy's duty to apply the Scriptures and sound doctrine to his people as waging a good war, waging a war on sin. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul explains to Timothy how people are to behave themselves in the household of God. How's that for a sermon title? How to behave. 1 Timothy 4.11, just a couple verses before our text, Paul tells Timothy, command and teach these things. First Timothy 6, two, teach and urge these things. The same root word as exhortation. First Timothy 6.17, to the rich in this world, Paul tells them, charge them to not be haughty. In other words, it's, it's not, you should work on your pride. It's stop being so arrogant. Second Timothy 2.14, Paul says, remind them of these things and charge them before God. In other words, repeat truth over and over and over and over again. 2 Timothy 4.2, Preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's the idea of repetition. Again, Paul told Titus concerning insubordinate church members and teachers in the church, he said, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Titus 1.13. This gets us away from the notion that it is me and my personality as a preacher that affects change. That can't be the case. It is truth that affects change. And spoken directly is best. In fact, after the instruction to Titus concerning men and women in the church in Titus 2, Paul tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You know what I do when I get an email or a phone call from somebody in our church that says, I completely disagree with what you said. I do not ignore that. I ask them to write me a paper and prove their point because I will not disregard that. But what's the aim? What's the goal? Here's the balance. 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is what? Love. The aim of our charge is love. What is the most loving thing that a preacher can do? To help you become more like Christ. It's the most loving thing. And so the church was to follow the practice of reading scripture of explaining it with exhortation. And what happens in the church when this practice is followed? What, what's the dynamic? What's the result? Not to try to entertain, but to give a charge out of love. What happens in the church? I'd like to show you an, ex- an extended example. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Now I want to show you what happens in the church when the charge to read the scripture and to explain it with exhortation is obeyed. In Acts 13, the Apostle Paul is in Antioch of Pisidia. It's a different city than the Antioch of Syria, where Paul's home church was. And what we see here is a living example of reading the scripture, followed by explanation and exhortation. And then we see what happens when we follow this practice. Acts 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, why would Paul receive an invitation to speak? And the inference here is that Paul was to comment on the scriptures that were just read. Why, why ask Paul? Well, Galatians 1.14 tells us that Paul, even as a young man, was very well known for his knowledge of the scriptures. So they see, there's Paul. Let's see what he has to say. Verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Why is Paul motioning with his hand? In the New Testament, this is always a motion that calls for silence. I don't know what it was. It may have been this. It may have been this. I don't know what it was. But what did it mean? It meant that the, the head of the synagogue saw Paul and said, we would like for you to comment on the scriptures I just read. And there's murmuring. There's whispering. There's, there's a, a, an uproar of some sort. And then Paul stood up to preach. And he doesn't say Men of Israel and you who fear God, I I, I hope you'll hear me. He says, listen. And boy, did he preach. Verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Right out of the gate, the doctrine of election. Whammo. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them as their land. He gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when they had removed, when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold... After me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everything who believe, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware. Beware. Therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Wow. Off the top of his head. That's exhortation. And what was the result? Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. What did Paul just do? He just created a hunger for the Word of God by expositing it with excellence. The reading and the preaching and exhortation from the Scripture is life giving, it causes spiritual hunger. Turn back to 1 Timothy 4. We get to our third command. Our third command in 1 Timothy 4 Timothy was to devote himself to the reading, to the exhortation, and third, to the teaching. To the teaching. Now, you might say, well, we're already talking about that. Now, Paul isn't merely speaking of the act of teaching, that's already implied. Rather, what he's doing is he's exhorting Timothy to explain the doctrinal truths and the implications that are contained, that are woven into, that are embedded into the text. This is an extremely strong argument against sentimental or devotional preaching, where you take a verse or two and try to make you feel good with it. No, the theological implications of the text are to be drawn out. This is the heartbeat of the purpose of Scripture in the first place. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. It doesn't just mean profitable to speak out loud or talk about it. It means for doctrinal instruction. I can give you an example right from these four verses. 13, 14, 15, 16. There are doctrinal truths contained in this text. They're embedded in here. In fact, we could point out truths in three different areas of theology. We could point out truths in the area of bibliology, the study of the Bible, from these three four verses. We could point out in Bibliology that the scriptures are the sole source of spiritual authority to the church and to the believer in Christ. we could point out that Scripture gives us our doctrine and it's meant to exhort us to change. We could point out that Scripture is the central feature of the gathered people of God. That's the central feature of worship. We could point out truths from the area of ecclesiology, from the church. There's a lot of these. Men who teach the Bible are gifted by God to do so. We could point out that men are not to self ordain, but they're approved by other men. We could point out that teaching shepherds in the church are to have as their very highest priority to be immersed in the Word of God. We could point out that the church is expected to be comprised of active listeners to the reading, to the exhortation, to the doctrinal instruction. We could point out that churches are to be shepherded by a plurality of elders. You notice the council of elders in verse 14. We could point out that shepherds are expected to learn and to grow themselves. We could point out that shepherds are the guardians of sound doctrine in the church. Verse 16. And we could point out some theological implications from the study of soteriology, of salvation. The church, verse 16, should expect that there are unbelievers in the midst. Salvation of the lost should be an expected result of the preached word of God. And we could say that the perseverance of the saints involves proving the reality of your salvation by lifetime faithfulness. That's four verses. And there's doctrine and it's rich. It's palpable. There's a fourth command to Timothy we could identify. Do not neglect the use of giftedness. Do not neglect the use of giftedness. Verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. At some point in the past, a group of local church elders, along with Paul, had publicly called out Timothy to the gospel ministry. This could have been in Lystra. That was Timothy's hometown. Timothy, apparently as a young man, was already teaching the Bible, both in the cities of Lystra and the neighboring city of Iconium. In fact, Acts 16, 2, and 3 says he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, this laying on of hands, this wasn't a magical event that somehow imparted a giftedness for preaching and teaching to Timothy, but it was at that time that God officially gave or commissioned him for the formal use of that gift in the church. And interestingly... This event was accompanied by prophetic utterances, by prophecies given by these elders, by Paul himself. We don't know the content of these prophecies, but we know the the context. The context is a new first century church where we don't really have a completed New Testament yet. But these prophecies must have been meant to be encouraging to Timothy, a charge of what God was calling him to do. What we have here is really our great example of ordination of somebody who's tested who's trained who's approved as a man of god there's a public recognition by other approved men it's a unique calling to the gospel ministry and so paul tells timothy do not neglect the gift that you have he's not saying that timothy was lazy or that he was neglectful He was Paul's representative to a hurting and a faltering church. But it was an admonition to perseverance, to faithfulness, to study and preach and study and preach and study and preach and study and preach. preach. I I texted back and forth this week with a pastor friend of mine. We wanted to speak on the phone. He said, I can't this week because I can't preach this sermon on Monday because Sunday is coming. Timothy's called to... Remember the sobriety and the weightiness of his calling and his ordination to the gospel ministry. This was to drive Timothy to faithfulness. When a young man comes to me and just out of the blue says, I'm ready to preach. I always tell him the same thing. The fact that you just came to me like that tells me you're not. Because you haven't been through anything. You haven't been tested. You haven't been trained. And you're certainly not going to be approved. At least not here. Ordination is meant to be a significant event after many years of testing. And training, because this says you're devoted to the ministry of the gospel. This is your life's work now. And so Timothy is told here don't abandon the ministry. I've often wondered what it would have been like to have some elders prophesy over me at my ordination, but I don't have to wonder that. I have something better. I don't need prophetic utterances, I have all the prophetic utterances. Right here in the Word of God, I have every single scripture God has meant to shape men of God and to shape the church. Every single one. So there's a responsibility and obligation now to the head of the church and to the church itself. And Paul gives a fifth command. He says, Watch yourself and your teaching. In verse 16, watch yourself and your teaching. You recall what Paul told Timothy just back in verse 12. He said, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Again, Paul is emphasizing setting an example of living the Christian faith. Earlier in the chapter in verse 4, he says, Train yourself for godliness. 1 Timothy 5.22, keep yourself pure. 2 Timothy 2.15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. You never guess. You never just wing it with the word of God. I'd rather fly a 747 blindfolded than ever open the Bible not knowing exactly what needs to be said. And he says in Titus 2 to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. This is keeping a watch on yourself and on your teaching. These are pretty intense. Five commands. The reading of scripture, the exhortation, the teaching. Do not neglect the gift. Watch yourself and your teaching. But How is Timothy to do this? Well, let me give you four determinations. Four determinations. What is the level of commitment? What's the amount of dedication involved here? Four determinations of the level of commitment. The amount of dedication. The first determination. Verse 13, he says, devote yourself. Devote yourself. It's a word that means give attention to something. Occupy your mind with these things. It literally means be addicted to something. The very same word is used in the previous chapter, 1 Timothy 3.8, that the elder or the deacon rather is to not be addicted to much wine it is as it were a devotion to the word of god like an addiction almost when a young man comes to me and says i'd like to be a minister of the gospel i just don't like to read and i say then you don't want to be a minister of the gospel is that that clear in fact this is a present tense imperative it demands repeated action Now, some have said, well, that just means that in every worship service, you need to have the reading of Scripture, exhortation, and teaching. It's not what this is talking about. It's not just the repeated action of what actually happens during that public worship service. That's obvious. That's the outcome. The repeated action, that which the shepherd is to devote himself to, is the preparation for gathering with God's people. The preparation, this is far more than Paul just giving the basic elements of a worship service. First do this, then do this, then do this. The implication is clear. There's a weighty priority on preparation. Now, there is a tremendous irony to shepherding the flock of God. And and here's the irony. For me as a pastor, and, and any pastor I think worth his salt, loves people. We love people. A a, a pastor who hates people is kind of, that's an odd duck and we don't want anything to do with that. We love people. We love to be around people. I enjoy getting to know you. I could stay after church for five hours and just talk if, if that was possible. But here's the great irony. That to best lead and guide, we must primarily ignore you. We must ignore you. Much of the time, I spend almost all of my time every week with people who are not members of Grace Bible Church. People like Moses and Samuel and David and Solomon and Paul and Peter and John. I know more about them than I know about any of you. In fact, your pastoral staff here at Grace, we enjoy the work of the ministry together. We enjoy and benefit from our fellowship. But frankly, if you you ever come up to the church building during the week, it's not that exciting. It's a bunch of us all locked in our office ignoring each other working this devotion here is not just speaking of some sort of emotional attachment to the gospel ministry that's not it at all it's speaking of being devoted to the preparation of the good food of the word of god so there's a devotion there's a second determination paul tells Timothy, practice these things practice these things he says this in verse 15 this is a the idea of meditating on something, re- repeatedly exercising something, pondering something. Sometimes it's even translated, take pains with these things. There's a sense of sacrifice. There's a sense of going above and beyond. There's of not phoning it in. That the ministry isn't just a job where you clock in and clock out. Your mind is there more than it's not. There is a repetition of learning, of taking yourself through the disciplined steps of study over and over and over again. The learning is never to stop. This is why pastors who make a practice of moving from church to church, preaching the same set of five years worth of sermons are worthless because they become stale and ineffective because they haven't learned anything new in 20 years. You practice these things. There's a third determination. Paul tells Timothy, immerse yourself in these things. Immerse yourself in them. It, literally in Greek, be in them. Be in them. And so immersed is a good translation. It's a good explanation. What does this mean? Be like a fish in the water. Be like a bird in the air. Be like a lion in the wilderness. Be where you ought to be. Be immersed in the environment of all that you must be doing. This is why the gospel ministry isn't a hobby. It's a passion of the heart to be purposefully pursued even to the point of pain and suffering and sacrifice. Every pastor I know when they go on vacation, you know what they always bring with them? Books. And they're reading. When their wife, their wife or kids aren't looking, they're opening the book and they're reading because it's it's not something you run away from. It's not something to get away from. Why why would I want a vacation from the word of God? And I would say something not applicable immediately to those in this room, but I know many people listen. And watch online. I would like to say something to church members of other churches listening to this message. And there's many of you out there that if your church can't support a pastor in that he has to divide his attention by working outside jobs to support his family. My question to you is, what's your plan? What's your plan? How about this? How about lots of men in the church all decide to get little part-time jobs and give that second income to the church? so that they can have a shepherd that goes and closes his door and locks it and gets himself on his knees and opens the word of God and doesn't come out until he has something to say. By the way, in all likelihood, if a church will do that, they will grow because they're being immersed in the word of God and then the church can fully support their pastor. There's a fourth determination. Paul says, persist in this. Verse 16, persist in this. Now at this point, you might be saying this seems a little redundant, doesn't it? Devote yourself, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, persist in this. Persist in this, literally in Greek says, stay on it. Stay on it. Yes, it's redundant. Paul is getting his point across here. You don't take one correspondence course in how to be a pastor and then go off into the ministry. I want you to know this is what is not demanded here. Determinations that are not here. Make sure to please people. That's not there. Entertain your people. That's not there. Pander to them and make them happy. That's not there. Rather, instead, there is to be a devotion, a practice, immersing, persisting, in offering the good food of the Word of God to souls eager for nutrition five commands four determinations now three results this is going to start going faster now because we're going down to that one three results the first result in verse 15 that all may see your progress that all may see your progress this is the same word for progress used of the lord jesus himself as a boy that he grows in wisdom stature and favor in luke chapter 2 verse 52 it's the same word for progress used of the apostle paul in his progress in Judaism beyond others in Galatians 1:14 what is Paul speaking of here in verse 15 that all may see your progress he's speaking of visible progress in personal godliness verse 12 in preaching and teaching verse 13 in particular areas of gifting verse 14 what does this imply it implies a humble spirit a teachable spirit a teachable attitude it implies that whatever area of ministry, any leader, any shepherd, and I would even uh, spill this over into deacons as well, any area, there's to be development, progress, change, growth, improvement. We're working our way through the Bible Training Institute's uh, kind of package we put together quite a number of years ago. I'm teaching through my notes for the fourth time. I've about reached the point, I don't like any of my own notes because I know more. And it's, it's a delight and it's a blessing. We went through the Gospel of Mark this morning. I had to do a whole section that wasn't even in there. So I thought, what, what idiot didn't put this in? Oh, that was me who didn't put that in there. This is one of the most important things in the whole book and it wasn't there. It was a joy to me because it meant that I learned something. It meant I was growing. But specific to shepherds who preach and teach, it means that you never rest, rest on, your, on your laurels. You, you don't just give up and just get into a rut. Because if I give up and get into a rut, all of you will. Scariest thing I ever heard in seminary was your church will become like you. I, I have nightmares about that. No, instead, the preachers and teachers of Christ's church are to emerge from their times of study, bursting with joy and bursting with new information and wonders gleaned from the word of God. It is putting yourself through self-imposed rigors and study and reading And learning and growth. There have to be moments of stunning joy and the delight of discovery. You know how often those moments need to happen? Every single week. Every single week. I never want to bring something to you where I haven't learned something new. And it is what I live for as a pastor. I live for that moment, whether I'm at home, whether I'm in my study here, or sometimes at at, at Starbucks, wherever I am. I hit that moment where I go, that's the key. And I just become a little bit charismatic because I got to stand up. <laughs> at Starbucks, the little tables are this big and you're just walking around them over and over again. And then I can just hardly wait for Sunday because I found the key and I want to share it with you. That's what the church needs. That's what you need. What a joy to learn more of our God. You understand that Psalm 16 says that at the right hand of God are pleasures forevermore. The implication is for all eternity, you will continue to learn of God. And since God is infinite, you won't make progress. How do you wrap your minds around that? I don't know, but we'll just keep going. What a joy to learn together that all may see your progress. There's a second result. Timothy will save himself. Verse 16 now this is obviously not speaking of Timothy working to gain his salvation. This is Timothy's perseverance in the faith. We see this elsewhere in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 2.15 speaks of continuing in the faith. Romans 11.22, continuing in the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15.1, hold fast to the preached word. Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And Colossians 1.23, continue in the faith. We're called to persevere. I don't think Paul is questioning Timothy's salvation. He's merely telling him to stay the course. Prove the reality of his salvation. How do you know someone is saved? Because they stay faithful. That's how you know. And of course, the theological counterpoint to the determination to persevere is the preservation given by the Lord. 2 Timothy 4.18 The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. But Paul says, by persisting in faithfulness, you prove the reality of your saving faith. I would think it would be important for the church to see the faith of their shepherds, to see that they follow Christ. In 1739, a pastor by the name of Gilbert Tennant preached a sermon that is so famous that it's still on the internet. It's called, On the Danger of an Unconverted Ministry. On the danger of an unconverted ministry, and in that sermon, Reverend Tennant basically describes unbelieving pastors who are a curse on the church. They prey upon the the faith itself and on the faithful. He said, "quote These caterpillars labor to devour every green thing." In two thousand ten, a study was published that exposed pastors who serve in churches and in what the, the study called secret disbelief. Pastors in America who get a paycheck, who in private say they are atheists. Many freely admit that they walked away from the faith long ago, but they continue in the church. Number one reason, paycheck. Number two reason, prestige. So Paul tells Timothy, stay with it, stay on it. And there's a third result, one that's very exciting to me, As a pastor, Timothy will save his hearers. Timothy will save his hearers. This assumes that there are unbelievers who attend the local church. I always assume that. This helps me with this. Either thinking they're saved or maybe curious about the gospel or even purposefully faking it for some sort of self-motivated reason. But this is a tremendous result that Paul gives Timothy that he will persist if he'll be diligent, if he'll be faithful Timothy should expect to see conversions. When somebody says we haven't had a baptism in 10 years in our church, there's something that's wrong. It's probably that they're not preaching the gospel. Timothy should expect to see conversions. And this is very exciting to me. What's the context of these conversions? The context is the faithfully preached word inside the walls of the church. Oh, there's so much of a push. We've got to get outside the walls. You already live outside the walls. We don't have to get out there. You're already there. How has the church grown for 2,000 years? Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you come to church with me and hear the gospel? Rinse and repeat for 2,000 years. This is very exciting. And by the way, in addition to new souls being saved, there's also the sense here that, that a shepherd being so utterly faithful inspires the faithfulness of the flock. And so they too are enjoying the fruits of assurance of salvation because you're persevering in the, in the faith. You're seeing the fruit of salvation brought forth by the power of the preached word. Five commands, four determinations, three results. Let me give you two applications. You might be saying, this sounds like a sermon to pastors. No. It's a sermon to all who are in partnership with the shepherds, and that is the sheep. It's to all of us. And so the first application I would urge all of you is to really have a grasp of the duties of shepherds. Really have a grasp of the duties of shepherds. This helps keep you from unrealistic expectations. The primary duty of the shepherds is to preach the word or to facilitate the preaching of the word unrealistic expectations creates frustration on the part of church members and it creates a sense of hopelessness for shepherds because we know we can't possibly meet everybody's expectations. It's, it's not possible. I read one study that said that, that it is only reasonable for a pastor to be able to personally pay attention to between 30 and 50 people. We're way past that point. In other words, keep the big picture in your mind You don't do yourselves any favor when you have expectations that exceed reality. Here's what you should expect from your shepherds. You should expect your shepherds to emerge among the sheep periodically with a glow in our hearts, bursting with excitement and eagerness to worship with you by imparting God's word to you. You should expect that. You should expect to be able to say, don't you dare stand behind this until you have something to say something profound from the Word of God. You should expect your shepherds to stay focused on those things which promote the feeding of the flock of God. So have a grasp on the duties of shepherds. That helps the whole church. And second second application, take advantage of the feeding opportunities you have. Take advantage of the feeding opportunities you have. Do you realize that at Grace Bible Church, every Lord's Day is a mini Bible conference? We have the Sunday school hour. We have Sunday morning. We have Sunday evening The shepherds of Christ's church aren't just here to entertain themselves. When the food is offered, you should partake. You ever have one of those events that stick in your mind? You can't remember what you had for breakfast yesterday, but you, you can remember something somebody said 35 years ago. I remember something somebody said 35 years ago to me on the phone. Before we were married, Sylvia had worked all day to prepare a beautiful Very complex, delicious meal for a mutual friend that we were going to have over to her apartment and the three of us were going to enjoy dinner together. And just a few minutes before dinner, our mutual friend called and said he couldn't make it. And I'll never forget his words. He said, I hope Sylvia didn't cook too much. Well, what do you think she's been doing all this time? How disappointing. Our pastoral staff do our best to lay before you a buffet of truth. You don't have to take all of it, but take a lot of it. Our lay elders do their best to facilitate the many pieces of the gospel ministry we're blessed to do. Take advantage of those feeding opportunities. It is for your benefit. Soak them up. You will grow as fast as you want to. We'll do our part in bringing out the buffet. You do your part. Bring a plate, a knife, and a fork and dig in for your own sanctification and walk with Christ. As a shepherd, I have really related over the years to John's statement when he said in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in what? The truth. That's the greatest joy. Well, I have one prayer request. One prayer request. And I'm just going to quote our beloved brother, the Apostle Paul. Here's our prayer request. 2 Corinthians 3.1 Finally, brothers... I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3, one. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Every one of you has a story about how the word of God turned your life upside down and changed you and made you into a, somebody who used to be part of the kingdom of darkness and now you're part of the kingdom of light. Paul's prayer request is that's happened to you, pray that it happens to others. Through the word of God. We're getting ready and We can almost count it in weeks now. Before we move to. Our white lane building. Listen God gave that to us. God gave us a responsibility. We must live up to that responsibility. And so that's our prayer. That the word of God just explodes. With effectiveness. So what do you do. While you're waiting for an apostle. We're not waiting for an apostle. Now the question is, what do you do while we're waiting for Christ? Prayerfully, your shepherds will be faithful. You be faithful. And you watch and see what Christ, the head of the church, chooses to do through our little body. I I have a prayer request. and I don't know if this is asking too much of the Lord because I know church history. I've read church history. But my prayer request is that I don't know what we want to call ourselves, the church that used to formerly meet on Young Street, now on White Lane, who knows where we'll go after that. But this organization, my prayer request has been that we are faithful till Christ returns. That's asking a lot, because there aren't that many. There aren't that many. But if you'll stay faithful, if your shepherds will stay faithful, then the church will as well. Let's pray together. We thank you, Father, for this... Uh, just really a feast of truth. Four little verses and not nearly enough time to really dig into them like we maybe ought to, Lord. Lord, we, we hurt to see, even in the past months, certainly in the past two years, how many formerly faithful churches have turned away from the true gospel. How many pastors who used to preach the gospel are now preaching woke ideology, are now preaching transgenderism as some sort of compassion who are now being towed by the world instead of proclaiming Christ Lord, I don't know the list of faithful churches in the world but I know it's smaller than it was a year ago but at the same time Lord we trust you that you're working We would ask you to continue to raise up godly men both within our church and within churches around the world. We would ask you, Lord, for our particular membership here, that this would be a membership devoted to the church of Jesus Christ, devoted to service, devoted to using their spiritual gifts, devoted to the gospel of Christ, and that we would together cry out to you for souls that many would join our ranks before it's too late, Before the offer of grace is withdrawn, before Christ returns and the era of grace is done. Let us have that as our driving prayer, Lord, not to focus on our careers, not to focus on things in the world or, or accomplishing trivial things like taking trips or traveling or just things that don't matter. But help us, Lord, to be determined to see souls come to saving faith. Let the shepherds of our church be faithful to you, persisting in these things. And let the sheep of the church be faithful to you, persisting in the gospel ministry. And we will look forward, Lord, to the results of your work among us. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.